let me have you turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, we're resuming our study of the book of Revelation after a three-week break. And the title of the message this morning is Jesus Breaks the Seals. Jesus Breaks the Seals. And my goal today is to look at verses 6, or chapter 6, verses 1 through 17. Well, good news for all of you. You made it through the year 2020. And that is good news. And now here we are on the very first Sunday of 2021 where we're going to be starting the year with the four horsemen of the apocalypse and the breaking of the six seals of Revelation chapter 6. I'm not sure what that means regarding what kind of year this will turn out to be. But what we will see today will make 2020 seem like a rather pleasant year. The events of Revelation 6 are so bad that by the time the sixth seal has been broken, the inhabitants of the earth are crying out for the mountains and the rocks to fall upon them to hide them from the wrath of Almighty God. Little do they realize that what they have experienced are merely the beginnings of birth pangs and that things are going to get so much worse for them from there. You will recall that in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus had invited John to come up to heaven and see the things which must take place. And shortly thereafter, John is in heaven witnessing what he then begins to describe. And he sees a scroll in the hand of God containing the prehistory of the things that must take place as God brings history to its culmination. John tells us that this scroll is sealed with seven seals. And he also tells us that Jesus steps forward and takes the scroll from the hand of God. And as soon as he does so, we're told that a tsunami of worship begins to move out from the throne of God until it washes over all of heaven and then all of creation as every living creature is worshiping the enthroned God and the Lamb. And this is where we left off a few Sundays ago. In her great hymn of the faith, Carrie Underwood asked Jesus to take the wheel and to take it from her hands. Almost literally, we see Jesus in Revelation 5 taking the wheel of human destiny, only it's not a wheel, but it's a scroll that he takes from the hand of of God himself. And in our chapter today, we're going to observe him beginning to break the seals of this scroll. Now, real quickly, as as for when the events of Revelation 6 take place in the timeline of prophetic history, commentators are divided at various opinions based on their theological orientation. But I would agree with those who understand John to be speaking of events that still lie in our future. If we take the descriptions in chapter 6 at face value, we have to admit that they seem to be describing events on a scale of severity that the world has not yet seen, describing a future of unparalleled trouble for the world, the likes of which have never occurred before in human history, at least on this scale. Even more specifically, many dispensationalist commentators see Revelation 6 and following as a description of the seven-year tribulation period that takes place just prior to the second coming of Christ. This seven-year tribulation period is the 70th week of Daniel, spoken about in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, and the time of Jacob's trouble, spoken about in Jeremiah chapter 37, verse 7, 
where the prophet says, Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it, and it is the time of Jacob's distress. But even those who agree on this point, that the events described in Revelation 6 and following are during the seven-year tribulation period, even those who agree on that, they have different ideas regarding the specific timing of the events of chapter 6 in relation to this seven-year tribulation period. Do the events of Revelation 6 happen during the first half of the tribulation, or do they happen during the second half of the tribulation, or do they span both the first and the second half? Perhaps we can gain clarity on this question as we work our way through the book of Revelation and the weeks to come, but I do think that given our theological orientation here at Cornerstone, most of us will agree that the events of Revelation 6 lie in the future describing a series of events to come that the world has never yet seen and that serve to usher the world closer toward the second coming of Christ. And that's how I'm going to want us to look at this as we break down the passage today. If you want to break down the passage, you'll see the notes and the, the link, the document where you also find the worship lyrics for today. We're going to look at six seals that Jesus breaks ushering mankind toward the culmination of history at his second coming. Six seals that Jesus breaks. And the first is the seal that brings forth a conquering leader. The seal that brings forth a conquering leader. Observe what John says in verse 1. He says, Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals... And I heard one of the four living creatures saying as with a voice of thunder, come. Now some Greek manuscripts have one of the four living creatures saying, come and see. And some of you will actually see that in your English translation. As if he's talking to John and inviting John to come and see what is about to happen. But the best manuscripts just have the word come. With the call being delivered, not so much to John, but to each of the horsemen who is being summoned forth. And this is how we'll understand this call to come here in this passage and in the coming verses. Here in verse 1, John tells us that one of the living creatures delivers this call loudly as with a voice of thunder. By the way, everything in Revelation is loud. Anything anyone says, it's said loudly. I don't know that there's any whispering in the book of Revelation. There's 30 minutes of silence that we will encounter in the coming weeks. But other than that, everything is loud. And everything everyone says is loud. Upon hearing this thunderous call, John says in verse 2, I looked and behold a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow. And a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Basically, John is giving four descriptions of this particular rider. First of all, he's sitting on a white horse, which represents royal power, and perhaps the pretense of righteousness. Secondly, John sees that this rider had a bow, but says nothing about him having any arrows probably indicating that he doesn't have to fire a shot in order to conquer nation after nation. The victories he will achieve are bloodless victories. The bow without the arrows likely indicates that war is threatened but never actually occurs because victory is accomplished through peaceful means. Thirdly, about this writer, it is said that a crown was given to him. And the word translated crown here is the Greek word stephanos. We've seen this word before. This is not the word for diadem that is used in Revelation 19 to speak of what Christ is wearing. The diadem was the crown 
of the ruler. The Stephanos is the garland of a person who is victorious or the recipient of some great honor. We're not told who gave the Stephanos to this person on the horse, but we know from Scripture that God is the one who establishes kings and who takes them down. And so we can safely infer that God is the one who has given this rider on a white horse the honor and the power to conquer and to rule for this period of time. Fourthly, this rider on this white horse is described as one who went out conquering and to conquer. In other words, he went out throughout the world with the intent to conquer, and he succeeded in his intentions wherever he went. Now, other than these descriptions, there is nothing else said in this passage about this rider on this white horse, which leaves the question of his identity open to a variety of interpretations. There are some writers who view this rider on a white horse as none other than Jesus. But that would not be my first choice here, although I must say that I think at first blush, we are supposed to read these words in this passage and think or wonder if it might be Jesus until we look more closely. True, Jesus later in Revelation 19 is going to come from heaven on a white horse, but that actually, I think, serves to make the point that this horseman here in Revelation 6 is likely a premature messianic figure who would like to think of himself as the true Messiah, but he is not. Plus, this writer here in Revelation 6 has a bow without arrows, but in Revelation 19, Jesus has a sharp sword coming out of his mouth, which he wields as a devastating weapon. Also in Revelation 19, Jesus is said to have many diadems on his head, but the writer here merely has a garland of honor and victory. Also, we're going to see that the other three horsemen of Revelation 6 all represent negative and awful things, so it would be odd for this first horseman to be a positive thing, representing, for example, Jesus coming, followed by warfare, famine, and death, which is what we're going to see. So for these reasons, many interpreters take the writer here um, as some powerful entity or even a person who comes forth at the beginning of the tribulation period with the intent to conquer the world. And he will succeed in that conquering and bring about a short spell on earth when the world experiences a false pretense of peace or a shallow peace under his reign. It's not specifically stated here that this horseman brings peace, but it's implied, I think, by the bow without arrows, and it's further indicated by the next two verses where we're going to see that the next horseman is authorized to take peace away from the earth. The New Testament speaks in several places about one whom we call the Antichrist who is to come to such an extent that the Apostle John can say to his readers in 1 John 2.18, you have heard that Antichrist is coming. Because they had all heard that. Every Christian of that day knew the Antichrist is coming. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul promises that the day of the Lord will not come until the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God displaying himself as being God. There are other passages foretelling the Antichrist and what he will do, and we're going to be reading much more about him in the coming chapters. But in all likelihood, this first horseman of the apocalypse is our very first glimpse of him. 
as he, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, comes forth conquering the world with bloodless victories and bringing about a shallow peace. But then comes the second seal that Jesus breaks, which serves to usher mankind further toward the culmination of history and the establishment of his kingdom. Number two, the second seal is the seal that results in conflict and war. The seal that results in conflict and war. Observe what John says happens in verse 3 and following. When he, Jesus, spoke, broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come. And another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth and that men would slay one another and a great sword was given to him. In the first place, this horse is described as a red horse and the word translated red speaks of a fiery red color that clearly represents warfare and bloodshed and we're not left to guess at this because John speaks of the rider of this fiery red horse and says to him who sat on it it was granted to take peace from the earth again this statement implies that there was a kind of peace that was on earth at this time brought likely by the first horseman and now this second horseman is granted by God the power to take it away entirely And think about how awful this removal of peace will be. Even in our day today, even in times of war, there's always been a level of peace enjoyed between countries that are allied with one another. But this horseman is granted power to remove essentially all peace from the earth. And the result is, the text says, that men would slay You could paraphrase this, that men would brutally kill one another, slaughter one another. This is speaking of fights between individuals that result in homicides, but also of the animosity between nations who will go to war against one another and kill one another. It also speaks of conflicts between groups of people who will lash out in violence and kill one another. People of various ethnicities will rise up against one another, neighbor against neighbor, and nation against nation. This will happen the world over. John speaks of this rider on this fiery red horse and says that a great sword was given to him. Not just a sword, but a great sword. A sword that could be wielded and end up killing quite a number of people. It doesn't seem that this writer himself is the one who's wielding this sword, but the sword that is given to him is wielded by those who have fallen under his influence. So John has seen a rider on a white horse who is granted by God the power to conquer and to bring about a tenuous peace. But then he sees a rider on a red horse who is granted by God the power to take this peace from the earth. But these are not the only horsemen that John sees. Jesus breaks yet another seal that serves to usher mankind closer toward the culmination of history and the establishment of his kingdom. Number three, the seal that results in famine. The seal that results in famine. Observe what John sees happening in verse five. He says, when he, Jesus, broke the third seal I heard the third living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. In every marketplace of this day, a common sight would have been a pair of scales, which was used to measure out the weight of currency or to weigh out the quantity of various products that would be given in exchange for that currency, products like wheat and barley. 
In verse 6, John says, And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. A denarius back in this time was a day's wage for the average worker of this day. And so if we use modern currency values, we could probably get by with saying that a denarius was worth what a minimum wage worker could make today in one day of work. The federal minimum wage presently, I believe, is $7.25, which means that a minimum wage worker today would make about $58 a day. So if we read that paradigm into this verse, we could paraphrase it as saying, a quart of wheat for $58. Back in this day, a common laborer would be able to purchase 16 quarts of wheat for a denarius. But now that is down to just one quart of wheat which is hardly enough for him to live on for a day, not to speak of his family that he needs to provide for. Obviously, this kind of language used here speaks of conditions of severe famine where a quart of wheat would cost this much money. Barley was less valuable than wheat, and it was often the more economical choice of those who were poorer, but even here we learn that one could only get three quarts of barley for the modern-day equivalent of $58. That's still crazy. But then notice the instruction to this horseman at the end of verse 6, the instruction that says, do not damage the oil and the wine. So clearly the wheat and barley are being damaged, making them scarce commodities and thus so costly. But the instruction to this horseman is do not damage the oil and the wine. It seems that this horseman is allowed to damage farmland that makes crops of wheat and barley scarce, but was not allowed to damage olive groves and vineyards at this particular time. This seems to imply that whatever this famine is, as severe as it is, it is not universal in its scope. Wheat and barley farmers are getting hammered during this famine, but olive growers and wineries are doing okay. Some writers suggest that oil and wine were luxury items compared to things like wheat and barley, and I think there's some merit to that suggestion. So as one writer says, this passage may be suggesting that the lifestyles of the wealthier inhabitants of the earth are less affected by the early judgments represented by these horsemen. I want you to think about this. Have have we not seen how this is actually true over the last 10 months of this pandemic Millions of people have lost their businesses and many have lost jobs and have been reduced to standing in food lines. But the wealthiest people have seen their wealth grow during the health crisis of the last 10 months. I read just this week that billionaires in the United States have seen their wealth grow by almost a trillion dollars in the last 10 months, while many others have experienced great loss. And I don't share this fact with you this morning at all to impugn those who have prospered during this time, but simply to point out that there will likely be a similar kind of disparity of outcomes during this future time that John is prophesying about here. When this third horseman is set loose to bring famine, there will be some who are hammered by this and left in abject poverty and struggling to survive, while others are going to be left doing quite well. A contradiction 
that will likely serve to create an unbearable tension between the haves and the have-nots. And do we not see whispers, foreshadowings of all of these things even over the events of this past year? This tension will breed resentment that will likely explode into acts of violence and more death, which leads us to the fourth seal that Jesus breaks. And that is the seal that results in the death of many. The seal that results in the death of many. Observe what happens in verse 7. John says, When the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death. And Hades was following with him. This horse is described as an ashen horse. And the Greek word translated ashen here is the word chloros. Chloros, from which we get our word chlorine. In this particular context, this word is used to describe the yellowish, greenish hue of a decaying corpse. We're not left to interpret what this ashen horse and its rider represent because John speaks of the rider on this horse and says that he who sat on it had the name Death. And he also tells us that Hades was following with him. So Death is the rider of this horse and Hades, which is the abode of departed spirits, follows after him like a street sweeper swallowing up those who die. I read one commentator who spoke of this fourth horseman called death as pulling a hearse called Hades. As for the extent of the death that this writer will cause, John says in verse 8 that authority was given to them. In other words, over death and Hades, over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. There is no particular manner of death that this writer is partial to. He brings death through whatever means he can. He kills some with the sword of warfare and conflict and he kills others with famine both of which show that this horseman represents the after effects of the previous horseman. He also kills with pestilence and disease and by means of the wild beast or the creatures, the animal creatures of the earth. And this killing by animal creatures could come about through these animals directly attacking human beings and it could also include diseases coming from these animals as well. John tells us in verse 8 that authority was given to them, to death and to Hades, over a fourth of the earth to kill. Meaning, guys, that one-fourth of the world's population is going to be killed during this awful time. Right now, the world's population is 7.8 billion people which would mean that if this were to happen today, we're talking about almost 2 billion people dying. As of right now, there have been under 2 million people who have died globally from COVID-19. About 1.84 million who have died from COVID-19 But here we're talking about a crisis of death that will bring about the death of 2,000 million, 2 billion people. Imagine that. As awful as this will be, please notice, though, the mercy that is here. The language here is designed both to show the vast extent of death allowed, which is one-fourth of the world's population, but the language here also shows the limitation to which this killing is allowed to go. 
This fourth horseman has authority to kill only one-fourth of the world's population and no more. And so there's a silver lining of God's mercy here. Given the sinful state of the world at this time, we should marvel that God would spare three-fourths of the world's population at this time. We're going to see in the next chapter that part of the reason, no doubt, for this is because God is in the business of saving people. But anyway, these are the four horsemen of the apocalypse represented here as the first four of seven seals ultimately. And as awful as these are, Jesus is not finished. He breaks another seal that serves to usher mankind toward the culmination of history and the establishment of his kingdom. Number five, the seal, the fifth seal that represents martyred saints praying for divine vengeance. The seal that represents martyred saints praying for divine vengeance. Observe what John says in verse 9. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. So these are clearly martyred saints who are now in heaven. And John gives three descriptions of these souls who are beneath this heavenly altar. First of all, he says they had been slain. We could paraphrase this. They had been slaughtered. They had been brutally killed rather than merely dying of natural causes or of famine, for example. Secondly, they had been slain for a reason, because of the word of God. Thirdly, they had been slain because of the testimony which they had maintained. So clearly, these are faithful believers in Jesus Christ who maintained a faithful testimony for Christ on earth in spite of persecution. And their lives were ultimately taken from them because of their allegiance to Christ. Rather than being sent to Hades, they are in heaven underneath the heavenly altar. And the fact that they are under the heavenly altar here indicates perhaps that they died as acceptable sacrifices to God. Or perhaps some suggest this is the heavenly altar of incense and these souls are kneeling beneath this altar because they have a petition to bring to God in prayer. As for the petition, look at verse 10. As they make petition to God, observe what they do in verse 10. John says, and they cried out with a loud voice. Again, everything's loud in Revelation. They're not whispering this prayer. They cry out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? These saints are passionate about this matter. We see them crying out with a loud voice and expressing longing. How long, O Lord, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood? They seem to have no doubt that God is eventually going to do this, but it is feeling to them like God is refraining an awfully long time. And before any of us criticize these heavenly saints, just remember they're in heaven and we're not, okay? And keep in mind that they've been brutally killed for their faith in Christ, experiencing suffering that none of us in this place know anything about. Notice also that they're leaving it to God to execute vengeance on the evildoers who took their life. They're in heaven where they want to be, so they're happy enough about that, but they are filled with a longing discontent that God's reputation is going to take a hit if he allows their killers to continue on without justice and punishment from God. And these saints are bringing this longing to the right person, right? To God. And to their credit, even though God has delayed, 
these saints are still calling God holy and true. But their express longing is that God would show himself holy and true to his word on earth by judging the wicked who have brutally killed them. When they were wronged on earth, these saints obviously did not retaliate with evil for evil because they rested in the certainty that vengeance belonged to God and that God will repay. And now they're wanting God to keep his promise and execute vengeance consistent with his word. Now there are some interpreters who understand these saints who are kneeling beneath this altar to be martyred saints from all of the ages. That's possible, but their words here in verse 10 seem to indicate that the people who killed them are still alive and roaming the earth. And for this reason, many commentators conclude that these saints under the altar are those who have come to faith in Christ during this very tribulation period and who were then killed for their faith in Christ during this period. And they're wanting justice from God upon those who are still alive and who killed them. And if this view is correct, it provides us yet another glimpse of the awfulness of this time period in human history. Observe God's answer to their prayer in verse 11. John says, And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. First of all, they're given a white robe of dignity, of righteousness, and celebration, which implies a promise of celebration to come. This is the attire that these very saints will be wearing when they return with Christ at his second coming, when Christ comes to make war. They were also told to rest to chill for a little while longer. In other words, they're told essentially to stop asking for vengeance and to just enjoy the blessedness of heaven. And they're told that others will be persecuted and killed on the road ahead. And God is telling them that he will not be fully avenging their blood until, he says, the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed as they had been would be completed also. This means that more faithful followers of Christ have yet to die. More blood will be shed. More Christians will die up to a certain number in God's plan. And when that number is completed, then God's judgment will fall in a decisive way that will in no uncertain terms avenge their blood, and leave every one of them completely satisfied with how God's justice is done. Keep in mind that this fifth seal here gives us, it's like a foreshadowing seal that gives us a foreshadowing of what is to come. It serves as a harbinger of what still lies ahead. The loud prayers of these saints serve as the sounding of the thunder that indicates an approaching storm upon earth. And God's assurance that he will answer their cries is a harbinger of what we're actually going to see in Revelation chapter 8, where we will see how these very prayers will serve to intensify the judgments that are hurled from heaven upon the earth. And the days to come. In the meantime, there is one more seal that Jesus breaks before this chapter ends, which serves to usher mankind toward the culmination of history and the establishment of his kingdom. Number six, the seal that results in awful events and abject terror upon all mankind. Observe what John sees beginning in verse 12. He says, I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, 
And the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its umright figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. The description we find here in verses 12 through 14 is about as bad of a description of tribulation as any of us can imagine. First of all, John says that there was a great earthquake, literally in the Greek, a mega seismos will take place. Imagine a great earthquake happening all over the world, the damage that that would do. Also, from the vantage point of earth, John tells us that he sees that the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. Something as a result of this earthquake, again, thinking of the damage that it can do, think of nuclear power plants being shaken and exploding as a result of this great earthquake and other damage being done, creating awful explosions and and fires all over the earth. The result is that the sun will become black as sackcloth made of hair, which probably speaks of an incredible volume of dust and smoke and ash that is in the air at this time that will make the sun appear black from the vantage point of those viewing it from earth. For all we know, there may be other causes of the sun being blackened as well. From the vantage point of earth, also, John sees that the moon became like blood. Notice that John is not saying that the moon became blood, but that it became like blood, meaning that it appeared blood red when one would be looking up at it through the compromised atmosphere of the earth. We actually saw, as some of you will recall, a very red moon here in Southern California over this past year as a result of the fires that were raging. It's these kinds of phenomena taking place on earth that will cause the moon to look as if it is blood red in its appearance. John also says in verse 13 that the stars of the sky fell to the earth. Keep in mind that the Greek word translated star here simply speaks of any bright object in the heavens, whether that is an actual star or a planet or a comet or a meteorite falling from the sky to earth, almost certainly John is describing something like a meteor shower wherein the pieces of an asteroid, for example, or a comet entering the earth's atmosphere and plummeting to earth and in millions of smaller fiery pieces. There will be so many of these fiery objects falling through the sky to the earth that John says in verse 13 that it will be as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. John also says, and this is crazy here in verse 14, that the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up. How do we visualize that? I'm not sure, but imagine the sky above us as a blue scroll or roll of material, sheet of material that's unrolled with a scroll on both ends. And then think of someone cutting that blue expanse with scissors. What would happen? But what happened is that the former points of contact will quickly curl up and retreat to the scrolls from which they came. And that's whatever John is witnessing here looks like to him. It's like someone cut the sky in two and it just opens so quickly. And what appears... For the world to see when the curtains of the heavens are opened up like this, we can only imagine. 
And whatever force is causing this phenomenon in the sky, it will be making its impact upon the earth as well, consistent with the great earthquake that John described earlier. He says, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Whatever is going on with this earthquake and these forces of nature that are wielded from the heavens, the result is going to be that every mountain and every island on planet earth will be moved out of their places. Imagine the power that will be wielded in this moment to move the tectonic plates of earth enough to generate this outcome. And in saying what he says here, John isn't saying that the mountains and the islands will necessarily disappear. He's just simply saying they'll be moved out of their places. After the events described here, the islands of the earth and the mountains of the earth are going to look very different and be situated differently than they were before. As for how all these events will impact the psyche of the inhabitants of the earth, listen to what John tells us beginning in verse 15. He says, Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? This is an amazing moment. Everyone on earth is experiencing abject terror. After the third horseman appeared, it seemed that some people were still getting by okay, while others suffered. Yet here, everyone is freaking out. Kings are fearful. Great men and commanders of men are afraid. The rich and the strong are freaking out. Every slave and every free man is filled with fear and seeking for a place to hide and asking for the rocks and the mountains to fall upon them. Imagine how bad things have to be that someone is reduced to wishing a mountain would fall on them than to face the wrath of God. And here's what's amazing about this that the speakers here all over the globe, they're knowing in this moment who they want to hide from. From God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. These words are coming out of their mouth. Evidently, they will know in this moment that all the phenomena that they have witnessed and experienced are not just natural phenomena. They're not just Mother Earth being angry. They're not asking to be hidden from Mother Earth. They will know in this moment that this is the wrath of the enthroned God and His Messiah. And the question that we should ask is, how do they know this at this point? Well, we know, I think we can infer from the fifth seal and from what we're going to see next week in chapter 7, that there will be faithful souls on earth who are declaring the truth that all these things are coming from the hand of God. They may be even saying, not only is this coming from God, but here's what comes next according to the Bible. And then sure enough, that's what comes next. And now it seems that the word has spread And everyone on earth has come to believe this to be true, even if they still hate God and hate his Messiah and refuse to submit to God. Charles Ryrie speculates that perhaps earlier when the sky is split apart like a scroll in verse 14, that maybe something in that moment was revealing, perhaps in that moment The heavens were open for a moment so that people on earth can have a glimpse of the great scene of God 
on the throne with his lamb. I don't know. I don't know how it will happen, but however it happens, it seems that at this point, everyone on earth knows that there is a God in heaven and they will know that Jesus Christ is his Messiah and they will know that God and his Messiah are angry and they will know that the great day of their wrath has come and they will beg for the mountains and the rocks to fall on them and to crush them in order to hide them from the wrath of God and from his Messiah. Later, as Revelation unfolds, you know how they're going to respond as more and more judgments come? They're going to blaspheme God. There won't be anyone on earth at this time saying, I just don't see evidence for the existence of God. I'm looking. I'm an honest seeker. Just don't see evidence. Everyone's going to know that there is a God. They're going to know that Jesus is his Messiah and they will blaspheme him as they experience his wrath. Though some will believe, and we'll see that in chapter 7. This chapter ends with a question being asked by everyone on earth at this time, and the question is, who is able to stand? What a question that is. Who is able to stand, they ask. And in their minds, it's a rhetorical question. They ask this question because right now they know of no one who will be able to stand and survive this day of God's wrath. And the question that they are asking at the end of this chapter is a question that they should have asked much earlier. It's a question that we all should be asking now while we have the opportunity to do something about it. Mark my words, guys, if anything is certain, it is this. There is a day of God's wrath that is coming to this earth. There is a day when his wrath is visited upon the souls of those who reject Jesus Christ and refuse to humble themselves and believe in him. And keep in mind that thus far into the book of Revelation, the wrath of God is being described in merely physical terms. It's going to get much worse from here. Even physically as Revelation unfolds, there are greater physical judgments to come. And then there's the lake of fire to come. A lake that burns with fire and brimstone and brings torment upon the souls of the damned forever and ever. The mountains and the rocks falling on these people They want the mountains and the rocks to fall on them, to hide them from the wrath of God. But if the biggest mountain fell on them, it would not hide them from the wrath of God and the Lamb one bit, for it would merely usher them into an eternity in the lake of fire under God's judgment. The writer of Hebrews says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of of the living God, no one in and of themselves will be able to stand before the fury of God's wrath. The only people who will be able to stand in the day of God's wrath are those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. And we're going to see a multitude of such people in chapter 7. For those of us who have put our trust in Christ who are believers in him this morning, we all ought to stand amazed and be so grateful for the grace of God that God would look upon us with kindness and save us from this wrath that is being described here. But if you have not yet fled to Jesus Christ for refuge, I plead with you to run to Jesus today and find refuge in him. You say, Pastor Milton, I just, I mean, I, you know, as you're reading through this apocalyptic literature here in Revelation 6, I just have a hard time believing that all of this stuff's actually going to happen on earth. Fair enough, but I bet you didn't see 2020 coming either. This is God speaking to you in His grace and His mercy, saying these things are to come, and I want you to know in advance 
so that you can ask this question now, who is able to stand and you can find refuge in Jesus. I plead with you to realize that God created you in his image. He created you to live in relationship with him wherein he gives you every breath you breathe and every function of every organ in your body, every legitimate pleasure you experience in life, every pleasant sensation is a gift from God to you. And you should respond to this one who sustains your life in such a loving, gracious way by submitting to him in gratefulness and love and and obeying him and his law in all of your ways. The problem with mankind is that we have failed to love our creator in this way. We've rebelled against the living God. We've refused to give him the honor and the thanks that he deserves from us. And we have broken his laws and gone our own way according to our own wisdom. And for this reason, every one of us, including me, deserve his wrath. But thankfully, the Bible teaches us that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, the lamb, into the world to live the life that we failed to live and then to die the death that we deserve to die on the cross. And then God raised him from the dead and ascended him to his own right hand where Jesus now, at the right hand of the Father, has full authority to do whatever he pleases. And from that position, he is giving out righteousness and freedom and love and relationship and power to anyone who admits their bankruptcy and comes to him and says, Jesus, you are the one and only Savior for me. And if we respond to that sight of Jesus and we believe in him and we call on his name, then we will be saved. Our sins will be forgiven. And God's wrath will not fall upon us if we do not believe in Jesus and find refuge in him, then the only thing that awaits us is the wrath of Almighty God. As the psalmist says in Psalm chapter 2, verse 12, pay homage to the Son. Pay homage to Jesus, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. And blessed are all who find refuge in him. Revelation 6 ends with the question, who is able to stand? If you believe in Jesus Christ and you allow your sins to be washed away through his shed blood, you will be able to stand and you will be spared God's wrath forever. You will experience his love and grace and mercy forever instead. And I pray that this will be the testimony of every one of us who are gathered here today. And I'll tell you what, (laughs) I also pray that all of us uh, will just be faithful this year to share the good news of salvation through Jesus to the lost, that they might avoid the wrath of Almighty God in this life and in the life to come. Let's pray and ask God to help us to do this. Lord God, we are, personally, I'm, I'm in awe and undone by just what we have seen right now. But these are just the first six seals. There are seven seals and then seven trumpets and then seven bowls of your wrath. We're just right now in the sixth inning of a 20-inning game and the worst innings are still to come. You are not a God to be trifled with. Even now your wrath is being stored up for that great day when it will be unleashed. And if there's anyone here today, Lord, who has never fled to Jesus Christ for refuge, I pray that you would touch their heart and just draw them to Christ today, that they might call upon his name and be saved.
And for those of us who are saved, Lord, may our hearts melt with gratefulness over the grace that you have shown us. And may this give us much love to show to others and impassion our witness to others that they might be saved from your wrath as well. Give us boldness in this. Empower our witness. And glorify your name, Lord, through the mercy that you will show to us and to others through our faithful witness. May 2021 be a year of a faithful proclamation of the truth about you, about your holiness, about your truthfulness, about your justice and righteousness, about your wrath, and about your love and your grace and your mercy towards sinners who find refuge in your Son. We ask all of these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen.